Let's pray. Father God, as we open up um, to a very difficult section of text, one that's hard to understand for many of us, God, I pray that you will uh, use it to shape us and mold us into uh, your son's image, Father, and that we will see again and again how gracious and loving and just and holy that you are. So, Father, we come to you asking for help to understand things we in and of ourselves cannot understand. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Having read the very same Old Testament laws we're about to read today, the psalmist came to this conclusion. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing of the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now to the psalmist, the Old Testament laws stirred up the fires of his devotion. It rejoiced his heart, his heart. Now how many of us can relate to that sentiment about the Old Testament law? If anything, modern Christians typically read the law only when their yearly Bible reading plans say to do so. And when we do read it, we understand very little of it. And probably more than a few of us have closed our Bibles laughing at how strange some of these laws seem. How in the world could the psalmist read commands like Exodus chapter 23 verse 19? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk and walk away saying, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Far too often our misunderstanding of the letter of the law causes us to completely miss the heart of the law, which is the heart of God. This inevitably causes us to misuse the law. So, for example, some refer to the Old Testament laws to support their legalistic standards. You shouldn't hang out with those kinds of people after all. Don't you know the Old Testament says not to mix two kinds of cloth together? Some of us use it sarcastically. Joey, relax. We're not going to stone you. Still others of us completely unhitched from the Old Testament say, well, all we really need is the New Testament anyway. The Old Testament's out of date and we should just completely forget about it. All of these misuses fall tragically short of the psalmist's perspective of the law. When he read them, he saw God's perfection, God's righteousness, God's wisdom, God's goodness. So as my hope today in this exposition of Exodus chapter 20, the very end of Exodus 20, going into Exodus 23, that we will see that God's laws are good, righteous, holy, wisdom-giving. And that the only hope we have to achieve this good, this wisdom, this righteousness is in Jesus Christ, our Savior. The laws in Exodus chapter 20, verse 23, follow on the hills of the Ten Commandments. And in many ways, you can understand these specific laws as specific applications given to Israel as a nation so that they can obey the Ten Commandments. This is how they obey the Ten Commandments. Rather than taking this section, I think you'll be grateful to hear verse by verse. It might be helpful to think of the patterns that these 40 some odd laws give us in this section. To this end, Micah 6.8 provides a helpful summary of the law. Barry just read it to us. He has told you, old man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This threefold description of the law, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God provides categories for the commands we read in Exodus chapter 20 to Exodus 23. Several of the laws, first off, deal with justice among the people of God. Particularly doing justice in the laws of Exodus require four actions. Number one, being impartial to all. Number two, respecting life and liberty. Number three, respecting another's property. And number four, providing faithful, truthful testimony. First off, doing the law, doing justice required that Israel show impartiality to all people, regardless of their social status or their gender. In particular, this section deals with the rights of the poor and of slaves. Yes, it deals with the rights of slaves. So because it speaks specifically of slaves, I think it's important to define what slavery looked like in ancient Israel. More specifically, the slavery spoken of here is not the same kind of slavery with which most of us Westerners are familiar with. It's not an ethnic-based chattel system that was given in the 16th to 18th centuries. This is more like indentured service, which, as we will see later in chapter 21, verse 2, was never meant to be lifelong slavery, but was to be temporary servitude, just for a few years and then released. So we're talking about something completely different than what we think about in the 1800s, in the 17 and 1800s. In fact... As we're going to see, the acts committed by slave owners during those centuries were illegal and punishable in the eyes of the Old Testament. The injustices seen in our modern history were in direct violation of God's commands. And therefore, we've got to just be open about it. The Old Testament doesn't justify the slavery we're familiar with. The Old Testament, in fact, decries it as punishable by death. Let's just be completely honest about the differences between what Exodus is talking about when it says slaves and what we understand when we say slaves. There is a discrepancy there that we need to understand. Moving forward, according to God's law, justice is not to be given only to the social elite, but to all. We see this in several ways. Specifically, we see it as Israel is to give justice to Israel's Slave women. This is demonstrated in chapter 21, verses 7 through 11, which protects the rights and liberties of bond women. Now, we don't understand bond women because we don't have that in our culture, but a man could sell his daughter to become the bride of another man. You could, you could buy your bride back then. That was part of their culture. It wasn't illegal. It wasn't seen as sinful. You could buy your bride. And so this woman who was bought to eventually grow up and be a man's wife became a bond woman. She was on, on par with a slave. Now, believe it or not, the fact that God lays out rights for these women in chapter 21 is revolutionary in their day and age. In ancient cultures, slaves and women had no rights. You could do whatever you wanted to with them. There was nothing that required you to give justice to them. And yet God says, not in Israel. Not among my people. There will be justice for all. Whether they're slave or not, they will have justice in my land. Here's what he says, for example. 
uh, if you sell, if a man sells his daughter as a servant to others, particularly to become a bride, probably to become a bride, she's not to be treated like a male slave. She's not to be sold for foreigners. If the man's son grows up and says, you know what? I know dad, you bought her to become my bride. I don't love her. I don't want to be with her. The master is not to cut her off. He's not to stop her food, not to stop her clothing. And here's what's important. She's to be given every one of her marital, and here's what the word is in scripture, rights. Every one of her marital rights. And if she's denied these rights, he's to set her free at no cost. Later in chapter 21, verses 20 through 21, if a master hits his slave, regardless of their gender, male or female, and kills them, the slave is to be avenged, probably meaning this, that the master was to be put to death. That's typically what the word avenged is for. So if a master beat his slave to death, the master is then to be executed as if he committed murder, because guess what? It was murder. He didn't kill a piece of property. He didn't kill someone of a substandard, human, subhuman level. He killed another person. Therefore, God's justice must roll down. If you want to see how severe God is about this, he even says, if a master knocks out his slave's tooth or hits him in the eye and does damage, I think that's like a bruised eye. Guess what? The slave gets to walk free. So you see why we, like holding a candle to 1860s plantations, no, no, that that wouldn't have been had in Old Testament Israel. That kind of stuff was not to be named among the people of God. Even hit your slave in the wrong way and your slave gets to walk free. Justice for all. The master was to be held fully accountable for the way that he treated those who served him. This demand for justice also included the poor. Exodus chapter 23, verse 6, God says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. A poor man's lawsuit is to be held as just as important as a rich man's lawsuit. The judge is not to go, how much money do you have, and figure out what their social status is, and decide whether or not he's going to give justice to them or not. Everyone, whether they're rich or poor, is to be given due court, due uh, justice, due course of law. There's to be no impartiality, there's to be no partiality among them. And this heart of the law continues into James 2 9, as you know. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Next. Doing justice also required that Israel respect both a person's life and liberty. Namely, the law decries bloodshed. And anyone who kills another intentionally is to be put to death, as we see in chapter 21, verse 12. In this, God reveals the value and the sacredness of human life. It goes all the way back to Genesis 6 when he told Noah, Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. The basis of not killing other people is that God made them. And didn't just make them, but made them to reflect him and to relate to him. God made them with intentionality and purpose and and for a goal in mind, which was to glorify God. So when God thinks about justice for others, here's what he summarizes it as in chapter 21, verse 23. You shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Stripe. 
Absolute equality there. You get what you did. You get retribution for what you have done. Because in God's eyes, life and liberty are sacred. Striking and cursing one's parents, for instance, shows complete, absolute disregard for God's authority. And it also shows disrespect for the one that gave you life. Kidnapping, or in our modern terms, the slave trade, is punishable by death because it infringes upon the victim's God-given right to liberty. If two men get into a fight and one is wounded to the point that he's bedridden or hospitalized, then the one who hit him must pay for the loss of the wounded man's time. Why? Again, hitting and wounding a person is a strike against their liberty to work and make ends meet. So you wound them and you put them in the hospital bed where they can't work. You've just attacked their life and their liberty. Here's another interesting one. If a man gets into a fight, this is just incredible how God's thinking. He's, he's thinking about scenarios that most of us probably wouldn't have ever thought about. And most of them have to do with his people fighting, ironically. If a man gets into a fight with another man and a pregnant woman is wounded in the scuffle, so they're wrestling and roughhousing, throwing punches, and then he suddenly throws a punch and hits her in the stomach, for example. The one who hit the woman will pay as the judge determines. Now, if the woman is forced into labor and she miscarries and the baby dies, that's when God says a life for a life. Now, here's what's interesting. Just in our cultural context, to show you God's heart for the law, God's heart for his protection of life and liberty. If God demands life for the one who negligently took the life of a baby, then what might God demand of one who intentionally takes the life of a baby? If a baby accidentally dies in the scuffle and God says life for a life, what about the one who absolutely determines, yes, I'm taking this baby's life? The law's sanctity of life even applies to a man's ox goring another person. If the ox kills someone, the ox is to be stoned. And then in 21 verse 8, verse 28, it says this, and its flesh shall not be Eaten, which insinuates that the ox's corpse is now unholy. Why? Because the ox shed a human blood. It's not even fit to eat. Don't even eat it when you kill it. It's unholy. It took a life. It killed someone. The law presses in even further and says that if this ox had a reputation of getting out and chasing people and hurting people, then the owners, uh, then the ox's owner is to be put down with the ox. That sounds harsh. And imagine that in our context. A dog is known to get out of the fence and he bites at the mailman, bites at the neighbor, chases the kids, and then one day he gets out of the the fence and kills a kid. Well, you'd have to kill the owner of the dog along with the dog, according to this law. Why? Because God holds life as sacred. We should do everything we can to protect the sanctity of life. But even in his own law, God says, well, I'm going to be true to my principle. I respect the sacredness of life. So guess what he did? He instilled a way for that man whose ox gets out and has a reputation uh, of killing, of, of goring people. That man may now redeem his own life. He's got to pay incredible amount of money and save his life from being executed. So even then, God's saying, I believe in the sanctity of life. If you're not careful, I'll take your life for taking others' lives. But in the midst of all that happening and craziness happening, I'm going to be merciful and still give you a way to redeem yourself. This is God's incredible love. And it is only a gracious God 
who would give room for a ransom so that a guilty and negligent man might live. Only a gracious God would give room for that. God's value of life and liberty is seen also in his demand for sexual ethics. This is huge in our day and age. We live in a day and age where men are coming out left and right as doing whatever they want to, to ladies. We have... Uh, we live in a day and age where babysitters are being found out as uh, molesters and, and abusers and all these different kinds of things. And we, we live in a day and age that now is demanding consequences for those things. But that's not new. God has demanded that all along. In chapter 22, verse 16, here's what he says. If, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. What a great deterrent to premarital sex. Not if you get pregnant, if you make her pregnant, you marry her. If you sleep with her, you marry her. Why? Because God is saying, you can't do whatever you want. You're held accountable to what you do. You seduce a woman, you take her virginity, you now pay the price. Men, you're not free to go about and touch You're not free to go about and please yourselves. You will be held accountable because God honors life and liberty. It is a sad thing that we have so many churches that have covered up sexual abuse in cases where people have come out and saying that Sunday school teachers, pastors, and youth ministers, and worship leaders have molested them, and yet nobody does anything about it. Such a thing is not to be named among the people of God. We must take it seriously. The heart of God is honor, life, and liberty. And that means require consequences of those who think that they can do whatever they want. That's the best way to honor women. Best way to honor children. Best way to honor young men, even. is to teach them that there are consequences for their actions. And that men will be held accountable. Specifically men. I think it applies to women too. But anyone who thinks that they can do anything sexually, they'll be held accountable to that. Even Exodus 22 verses 1 through 4 demonstrate God's love for life. Here's what he says. If a thief is caught breaking in at night, you're free to kill him. If he's caught breaking in in broad daylight, you shouldn't kill him. Now that's bizarre, right? Now most of us gun-happy Texans are like, He gave us freedom. Let's leave the door open, honey. Let's give them an excuse. And God's like, hold on, hold on now. You need to know the difference. And, and the one commentator put it this way. The Israelites must ensure that a clear distinction is drawn between the value of a human life and even that of a thief and property. A guy stealing your TV in the middle of the night might be a danger to you. You're free to kill him in that, in that, according to this law. But if you see this guy and he's serenity, it's day, broad daylight, you should realize that him stealing your TV is not nearly on the same level as him being dead. You see the difference? There's a big difference there. And so God is saying, hey, listen, I'm giving you allowance. I understand in the middle of the night, you feel endangered, you feel threatened, kill the guy. You don't know his intentions. But if it's in broad daylight, be merciful. Honor life. Your possessions are not nearly as valuable as even the criminal who's trying to take them. I'm all for the Second Amendment and everything. I am not for the Second Amendment as a, as a permission to, 
do whatever we want to with it. We honor life. We don't be happy at the chance to take life. If anything, we seek every possibility we can to avoid that. Because there is a high distinction. And then we get to my favorite law. In chapter 23, verse 19. It's culturally strange. And it's one of my favorite little puzzlers. God shows the value of life when he says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I have quoted that about 50 times this week. I love it. Um, as foreign as this law may be to us, it's yet another indication of God's value of life, all life. You animal lovers should love this law. Basically, I've, I've looked at the, the, the different um, options for interpretation, and basically, here's what it's saying. Don't be sadistic. Sure, it might be talking about pagan practices. We don't know that. That's speculation. But here's, here's, the, here's what I think the heart of it is. A mother goat's milk is what gives life to a baby goat, right? So think about the ironic sadisticness, if that's even a word, um, of of killing a baby goat through the source of its life. Does that make sense? I tried to think of illustrations. I just couldn't think them up. Um, it, one example would be executing a criminal on his mother's birthday with his mother's gun in his mother's presence. That's a bit sadistic, right? Right, you shouldn't do that. Sure, the criminal might need to be executed for his crimes, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't uh, uh, just be ready to like. Let's just let's just make a day out of it. Let's let's make a party out of it. You should mourn the loss of life. Even boiling your goat shows how respectful you are about the life that God made. Even taking the life of food shows the respect. That you have for the life that God has given to those. God gave us goats to eat. I truly believe goat meat's great. But he wants us to eat it in a way that's thankful for the life that he's made. And the life which we now took that gives us life and sustenance. So don't be sadistic. Next, doing justice requires respecting property. The Israelites are to seek justice as concerned another's property. If If a person accidentally kills another animal then that person is to make restoration, meaning he must pay for the animal. Uh, If one's animal kills another animal, the men are to sell the living animal and then to split the meat of the dead animal in half. Complete restitution. You can't help it if your bulls are in the same same fence and both of them get into a fight and your bull kills the other. But one of the things you can do is say, well, this is a problem of life that we have. I'm sorry, my property hurt your property. Let's sell my property. We'll split the cost and we'll... Cut stakes and celebrate. Okay? If a man's animal grazes on another another's field and ruins the crop, guess what? He makes restitution. How? He gives of his own crops. And not of his dirty old moldy crops that have been sitting in the, uh, the, I don't even know what that's called, the little rotting machine. He gives them of the best, the best of his crops. Makes restitution with the best of his own vineyard. Accidental wildfires. If somebody makes a fire and it spreads, he's to make full restitution for the field and properties that were damaged. Even borrowed property is protected by God's law. If an Israelite borrows another's, their cultural version of a car and puts a big din in it, well, they're responsible to take care of it, to make restitution for it. In all this, God is simply saying, hey guys, 
Be mindful of others. I have provided for them, so by honoring my provision for them, you're honoring me. By honoring the property of others and respecting what others have, you're ultimately honoring me because I gave them that property. So you see the love that we're to share with neighbors. Now finally, doing justice in Israel requires preserving the truth. Faithful Israelites will not spread false reports or a malicious witness. The faithful will not fall in with the many who pervert justice. Accepting bribes is illegal in Israel. Why? For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. That's chapter 23, verse 8. In all things, Israel is to seek justice in every situation. The letter of the law in Exodus 23, at 20 to 23 might have changed, right? For example, we don't have to have laws anymore that say, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. But the heart of the law hasn't, has it? We're still, as God's people, required to respect life and liberty, to seek justice for all, to commit ourselves to to social justice. We as a church, more than anyone, should be committed to pray for, plead for, petition for social justice, for equality, for all people. If anyone should be standing up about that, it's not just red dead Republicans, but the people of God, because that is not an American principle. That is a biblical principle. America did not invent that as much as we might want to believe it. God's heart is for justice for all. We stand with the poor. We stand with the broken. We stand with the oppressed. And we pray that God will let his justice roll down. And if judgment has to begin with the household of God, and we have to come to terms with the fact that we ourselves have not been the truth and justice seekers that we should be, then we repent. And we pray for justice. We don't cover up sexual abuse. We don't cover up charges about molestations. We don't take advantage of others. We seek justice. Not truth and justice in the American way, but truth and justice in God's way. That's what God wants us to do. Second, the second requirement listed in Micah 6.8 summary of the law is to love kindness. Now the word for kindness can also be translated as mercy. I love it. Love mercy. Not just be merciful, but love mercy. Involves six things. Showing mercy and empathy to those in one's charge. That's the first one. Secondly, showing kindness to foreigners. Third, caring for widows and orphans. Fourth, forgiving debtors and loving enemies. And sixth, caring for the poor. The law ensures that all of these things would be done in Israel. So first, the Israelites were not to act like overlords uh, to those in their service. They were to show mercy and empathy for those in their charge. First, they were to set their slaves free on the seventh year. Can you imagine if we would have applied that all along? <laughs> first off, the slave trade would have never happen. But second off, the idea that, that slavery is a temporary thing, every seventh year, mass amounts of slaves having their own exodus. Why? Because isn't that what God did for God's people? He set them free from slavery. God's people are not to hold on to slaves. They're to 
let them go every seventh year. This is loving mercy. And still more, masters in Israel were to be men and women whom a slave could eventually say, I love my master. You don't hear that being said in the 16th to 18th centuries. But in Israel, that's what it's supposed to be like. These slaves were to be treated like family. To where they could actually say, I love my master. Second, masters were to live with empathy. They were not to unjustly separate men from their families. There's actually laws that protect a man to be with his wife and children, even as a slave. Again, in most slave cultures, the master can divide the men from the, from the wife and the children at his own whim and will. They're his property to move around, but not in Israel. Because God honors the sanctity of marriage. God honors mercy. And so as a merciful master, Israel is not to stoop to such depravity as separating men from their families. Third, masters were to observe the Sabbath, not for their own spiritual devotion, but listen, but also so that your ox, your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Guys, you may be a type A personality. You may be a go-getter, but you are not to be a slave driver. That's what they're saying in Israel. They are not to be people who drive their servants into the ground. They're to be mindful and remember that their servants need rest and refreshment. You see Boaz kind of applying this. Boaz's servants is... His servants in the field are all gleaning and they all sit at his table. And who is the one that's up and passing water and food to them? Not other servants. Boaz, the master. You see Ruth sitting at his table and what does he do? He passes her the grain. He doesn't say, Ruth, servant, come here, give me grain. He says, no, this is, this is the heart of servant leadership here. Masters are to serve empathetically their servants. Next, Israel was also called to love kindness by showing respect to foreigners. Boaz's kindness and hospitality toward Ruth serves, as an, again, as another example. Israel's attitude toward foreigners was to be mindful of the truth. They were once sojourners in, in Israel. They were to think empathetically, remembering how the Egyptians dealt with them harshly. That's what God says in chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God is so serious about the way that his people treat foreigners that he repeats the very same law again in chapter 23, verse 9. And when God repeats something twice, he means it. This better be obeyed. Now, applying to this to our context, let's ask ourselves, how do we as God's people treat foreigners? What do we say about immigrants? Now, I want to be absolutely clear. God was not saying, Israel, I don't want you to have boundaries. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, Israel, I want you to be a country without borders. In fact, part of their holiness is that they will be a very distinct group of people with clear borders. Absolutely. But it does not give them a right to mistreat foreigners and immigrants among them. My friends, this isn't a political debate. I don't care which side you fall on, whether we should build a wall, not build a wall. I don't really care. The wall's coming down when Christ comes back anyway. 
spend whatever you want to on it. It's a temporary fixture, and it's not going to fix any problems. Humanity's still going to sin. We should still long for Christ to come back and be king of the nations, not just president of the United States. So it doesn't matter what your opinion is on the wall. Take that out. What kinds of ethnic slurs have you said this week? Have you talked about them wetbacks lately? What kinds of overgeneralizations have you made? Derogatory remarks, hurtful statements, hurtful comments, and hospitable attitudes. My friends, I've been in Texas long enough that I've heard people say things that are a shame. People are not herds. They're a group of people. Sure, they may be breaking the law. They may need to be punished for breaking the law. They may need to be held responsible for their actions. But they are not a herd of cattle. They're not just immigrants. They're people made in the image of God. And may everything we say, regardless of who we vote for, regardless of what we stand for, may we always stand for loving mercy for the foreigner. I'm right there with everybody else. I think we need to have a system that allows for the right kind of immigration. I'm right there with everyone. I think that there has to be laws in place or else there's chaos. But... But you will never hear from my mouth a derogatory remark that will make an immigrant, even an illegal immigrant, uncomfortable. And to think that I don't love them. Why? Because such a thing is to be unheard of in the people of God. We're to love mercy. Love mercy. Love kindness. Again, you can email Brandon at brandon at gracechurchovilla.org. He's very good at responding to criticisms. Um, But here's the reality. Remember, Christians, you yourselves were once aliens and strangers to the covenants. Doesn't Ephesians 2 say that you once stood far off? That you were an alien, that you were an immigrant. You were a foreigner to Christ. And what did Christ do? He brought us to himself. How? In love. What room then do we or the Israelites have in being unkind to sojourners? When we were sojourners, Christ gave us such grace. I hope we never forget that. Widows and orphans were also close to the heart of God. He warns in no uncertain term. I want, I want everyone to hear this in 21 uh, verses 22 through 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, listen to this warning. This is huge. I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And then it gets worse. And I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. My friends, let's ask a simple question. Does God love orphans and widows? Does our love and importance and priority live with widows and orphans? The same command to love widows and orphans is given again in James 1.27. Here's what he says. Religion that is pure... Real, true religion, in other words, real Christianity that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit 
orphans and widows in their affliction. My friends, we could be a thousand person church. If we don't take care of our widows, we are not doing true Christianity. My friends, we can have a great program in our children's ministry, but if we do not move to the spiritual and natural orphans among us, then we are not doing true Christianity. Religion that is pure and true is one that gravitates to those whom God heart, God's heart mag, uh, is magnetized towards. He loves widows and orphans, and therefore we should match that heart. And guess what? Neglecting them is the same as oppressing them. To passively refuse to do it is the same to not do it at all. So my friends, I hope we reprioritize our ministries and start asking things like, how are we taking care of our widows? When was the last time we visited them? When was the last time we asked how they were doing? When was the last time we had a group of guys over? And and our church does it incredibly well, more than any church that I've ever been a part of. Widows are constantly telling me how a John Banks or a Larry Smith or any one of the armed guys are knocking on their door and saying, hey, how can we help? Can I fix your plumbing? Can I fix your roof or whatever? They're always there, almost annoyingly so, to the widows are like, I'm having to break things for them to fix it. But that's one thing that we we need to make sure moving forward as a church, as we grow, that we don't say, okay, yeah, that's great that we do that. Let's move on in other things. No, we need to continue prioritizing things like that. You see children walk into, into a church and you don't see a father attached to them. Guess what? That's a spiritual orphan. Do you gravitate to those children and say, how can I help this child know the Lord? You don't have a father teaching you about God? Great, let me be that for you. You don't have a mother who cares for you and shows you the love of Christ. Great. Let me be that to you. My friends, we have tons of those in this community. We need to be spiritual fathers and mothers to the orphans. Moving on. Israelites were not to be like typical money lenders who killed their debtors with insane interest and foreclosures. They were to be merciful to those who owe them. In fact, listen how great this would be. Interest was illegal in Israel. There was to be no interest. None at all. In fact, here's what God says in verses 26 to 27 of chapter 22. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, that's like a guarantee that he'll pay you back, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me again, listen to the warning. I will hear him. For I am compassionate. I am merciful. My friends, there's a reason Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven what? Our debtors. The way you forgive those who owe you, the way that you have mercy towards those who owe you money, owe you a favor, owe you whatever it is, the way that you act in mercy to them reflects whether or not you have actually received mercy from God or not. Forgiveness, mercy, kindness. Guess what all three have in common? You can only give what you first received in Christ. If you don't give mercy, if you don't forgive, and you hold things over people's head, guess what? It's very indicative, not that you're just not a believer, although I think that's a clear possibility, but that you don't understand the forgiveness that God has given you. The mercy that God has given you. God never asks his people to be something he has not first been to them. We should keep that in mind. 
Now, finally, loving kindness and mercy means caring for the poor. Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 through 11, command that the Israelites let the land lie fallow for the seventh year. That means don't, don't plant, don't harvest, don't do anything like that. Just let it grow naturally. And because they've planted seeds, or wild seeds are going to grow, and there's going to be wild wheat. And guess who's going to get to eat that? The poor of your people may eat. God's heart, he builds in benevolence. No scrooges allowed. He builds in benevolence into his law. Wealthy landowners make sure that the poor were fed among them. Guys, it's not socialism. That's kindness. To care for the poor, that's not a socialistic attitude. That's kindness. Yes, I think the poor have to work. In fact, in this, the poor have to go to the field and actually get the food that God allows wildly to grow. (laughs) He's not saying, hey, let the land fallow, then you harvest it and take it to their doorstep. That's not what he says. But he does say wealthy people need to be willing to share and the poor need to be willing to go get. And in God's perfect law, kindness and mercy is given. And people eat. No one starves. After all, did he not do the same thing with them? Did they deserve manna from heaven when they had no food? Did they deserve water? They didn't work for it. But he gave it to them anyway. God has shown us there's nothing that we can do for the poor, for the orphans, for the widows, or for the sojourners that God has not done for us first in Jesus. Now, finally, the third, the third character, the third requirement of the law is to walk humbly with your God. Now, according to the laws given in Exodus chapter 20 to chapter 23, walking humbly with one God, one's God means four things. Number one, it means worshiping God only. Number two, it means approaching God and living before him on his terms. Number three, it means giving God, God's one, giving God one's best. And then finally, it means remembering God's work for us. So let's look at the first one. These ones will go pretty quick. Israel is to be devoted to God alone. This includes not making idols. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. He warned them later that sacrifice to another god would bring death, that they would die if they did that. And in fact, they weren't even to say the names of other gods in their nation. So even saying Molech was a bad thing. You're not to have idols named among you. Why? Because in the words of the Shema, which we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And so what? Well, we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Because God is God alone. Being fully devoted to God also means avoiding the things who might draw us astray. That's why God commands in chapter 22, verse 18, that a sorceress is not permitted to live. In those days and ages, sorceresses belonged to pagan religions. They were diviners, meaning that they tried to find demonic powers and did things to try and manipulate the spiritual world in and of themselves. And and by going to them, they would turn away from God. They would turn towards idols. And so as a basic principle, God's law says, hey, worship me alone. Avoid anything, anything that might take your devotion from me. In our day and age, you know what that might mean? Completely avoiding pornography, not dabbling in it. It will turn your heart against the Lord. It not might turn your heart. It will turn your heart against the Lord. It might mean avoiding things like getting too wealthy, right? Sounds strange to us. 
But maybe getting too wealthy might be an idol that tempts us to draw our hearts away from God. It might mean avoiding the certain people that we know when we get around them, we're just going to be forced to sin. Sometimes it means, means making those kinds of decisions. Now to the second requirement, approaching God uh, and living before him on his terms. God saved the people of Israel so that he would dwell among them. And because he was their holy God, they were to approach him and live on his terms. They were not to build uh, build altars, for example. They weren't to build tools on their altar. That sounds strange, but the whole point of that is you build altars my way, not your way. You build altars my way. And then very importantly, the priest is to get dressed so he's not exposing himself when he climbs up the stairs to the altar. I think it's a great idea, just as a principle of climbing any stairs, that you make sure that you're not going to be exposing yourself when you make offerings to God. So he says, get dressed. Dress appropriately, because you come in my terms. Now, some people come to this and again say, this is why we need to wear suits and ties and all that kind of stuff. That's not what it's saying. The idea is, is that God has a way that he wants us to approach him. And we approach God on his terms, not on ours. That's why he says, don't let yeast touch your sacrifices. Don't let the fat burn until the morning. That's to be given to God. It's his. Don't eat meat that has been killed by other wild animals. Now, that seems absolutely strange. And if there's any point to it, it's simply this. God said not to, so don't do it. It's God's terms. He also warned them against things like bestiality. Why? God didn't make people to do that with animals. God made people in the image of God. Animals are not made in the image of God. And so bestiality basically changes God's terms. It then begins to confuse creation, doesn't it? Now, all of these laws show that God graciously saved his people and he had claim over their lives. Guys, I know I'm running out of time. This was a huge section and I want to finish it today. So just bear with me. The next requirement requires giving God your best. He says in chapter 23, verse 19, that you're to give him the overflow, you're to give him the fullness of your harvest, the overflow of your presses, the firstborn sons, the firstborn livestock, and the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the, into the house of the Lord your God. My friends, God doesn't want your second best. He wants your best. And he deserves it. What's more? Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He goes on later to praise God, and he says, he, God, has distributed freely and has given to the poor. That's you. He's given to you. His righteousness endures forever. Just like you will never be able to outshow the kindness of God to widows and orphans because he's been kind to you, you will never be able to outgive what God has given to you. It's almost a, uh, uh, we, you, we hear that term a lot in um, giving sermons and stuff, but it's absolutely true. And then finally, walking humbly with God means remembering his work. The Israelites are told to show up to three feasts, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering. All three, which are a reminder of God's gracious work and provision for his people. Today, we get to do the same thing. We're going to observe baptism. Then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. My friends, when we do these things, when we remember what God has done for us, we are walking humbly with our God. Isn't that incredible? We're obeying the law.
The final verses of this section, chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 23, verses 20 to 33, God promises blessing for obedience, but he warns. If you give your heart to idols, they will be a snare to you. Now we know that's eventually what happened. They were ensnared by the idols. They were ensnared by false gods. And so they needed not only to receive the law of God, they needed to receive whole new hearts, which wouldn't come through the old covenant. It would come through the new covenant. And so Exodus forces us to wait for Christ. Now, here's, here's what I hope in conclusion. We've been through 40 laws of the Old Testament. Um, just be thankful you don't have to come back next Sunday and have to do a second sermon on all those laws. But here's what we see. Seeing that God's law requires God's people to love justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, it's easy for us to see why the psalmist could say, the law of the Lord is perfect. Right? Now, here's the problem. God's laws are good. His promises are good. We are not. I think reading these laws and realizing that God requires justice, God requires mercy, God requires humility before him, I think we're forced to realize we don't do any of those things in and of ourselves. Paul says, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And then he proceeds in chapter uh, 3, verses 13 to 16, to show how we have failed to do justice. In verse 17, how we have failed to love mercy. And then in verse 18 of the same chapter, how we have failed to walk humbly before God. So my friends, according to Romans 3, we're guilty of not applying these same laws that God has given us. What then? How can we have hope? We may hope in Christ. He lived perfectly. He did justice. He loved mercy. We see that even with the woman accused of adultery, don't don't we? Loved mercy. He walked humbly before God. And despite his perfection in obeying the law, he died a sinner's death for us. He died for our injustices, for our unmerciful acts. He died for our arrogance before him. He was buried in a tomb that should have been ours, and he rose again. And now it's only because of him that we can do what Micah 6, 8 requires, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. If you find that you can't do any one of those three things, the only place you can turn is to Christ. You cannot do justice on your own. You can do justice in Jesus. Show mercy in Jesus. Walk humbly before God in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, what a burden sometimes the law fills. There's so many of them. Time and time again, Lord, we see just how heavy it is and how much we are under. Even 2319, which tells us not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk, Father, even that bears testimony against us on how we have not loved life the way that we should. So, God, we just pray right now that you will be with us. We pray, Father, that you will help us to obey your law in Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.